Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. We are nearing the end of the high church calendar. Uh, That is to say, we've walked through the darkness of Advent. We've been witness to the light of Christmas, and we've basked in epiphany, which reminds us that the divine light isn't just for Israel, but the divine light is for everyone. Uh, We've observed the divine suffer and reveal solidarity with every kind of death in Lent and ultimately on Good Friday. We've celebrated the life that bursts forth from a tomb, every kind of tomb, in a season called Easter. And now, nearing the end of Easter, we observe three feast days, Ascension Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, and Trinity Sunday, which are all followed by the longest season of the church calendar, Ordinary Time, or what is often called the season after Pentecost. This season is marked by the color green, and it invites every person to grow and to mature and to flourish as we embody the life and way of Jesus in this world. The season of Ordinary Time lasts about six months, concluding with Christ the King Sunday at the end of November, and then we begin our journey through the church calendar anew come December. But before Ordinary Time, three feasts. Last Sunday, Pastor Mindy talked about Ascension Sunday, and she eloquently called us back to the soul of the story, which isn't about a commission to colonialism in which we get the world to think exactly what we think or else. Rather, the ascension reminds us that we, the church, uh, the followers of Jesus, are invited to embody Jesus' life in the world through love. And rather than we Christians having some kind of corner on the divine, we Christians have been given a Jesus lens through which we're able to see and to celebrate the love of God whenever it is made manifest. And through whoever it is made manifest. Like the loving human in India that Mindy told us about who cared for the least of these with warmth, compassion, and generosity. And this brings me to today, to the Feast of Pentecost. When I was in high school, my best friend Tim and his brothers Tom Jr. and Travis uh, side note here, in case you're wondering, Tom Jr. was named after his dad, Tom Sr., And fortunately for the letter T, their mom's name was Teresa. (laughs) So it was the family of T's. Now back to my story. In my early high school years, my best friend Tim and his family of T's began attending a Pentecostal church. Now, having grown up in a Plymouth Brethren tradition, I didn't have much experience with the Pentecostal tradition. And so if the Pentecostal tradition was on one end of the spectrum in relation to the Holy Spirit, then my tradition was on the other end of the spectrum. 
In fact, if I'm being honest about my experience, in my tradition, we didn't even really talk about or even maybe have the Holy Spirit. For Plymouth Brethrens, we had the Bible. <laughs> and so I wasn't really familiar with listening to the quiet voice of God from within. In my tradition, God spoke clearly through the Bible. More so. I wasn't really familiar with the supernatural gifts of the Spirit like healing and, and prophecy. And going even further, I was completely unfamiliar with the idea that to prove a person's salvation, said person must speak in tongues. And by tongues, I don't mean what we see in Acts chapter 2 in which every person hears Peter's message in their own language. Rather, I'm talking about a kind of unrecognizable tongue, often called a prayer language, that the quote-unquote saved are supposed to be able to speak. And so, there I was, 13 or 14 years old, at the end of a fun night of youth group in which we attempted to inflict as much pain as possible on each other during dodgeball before singing worship songs and hearing a message about the gift of tongues. The end of that message when being asked, do you speak in tongues and if not raise your hand? In embarrassed honesty, I rose my hand, declaring to everyone that I did not speak in tongues. And before you knew it, I mean, in just a matter of moments, I was surrounded by a whole swath of youth and adult volunteers and, and a youth pastor, and they were laying hands on me, and they were all praying in tongues. And the youth pastor was saying things in English like, uh, just say a word, Mike, just, just say a word. It's like any language. You start small, and then over time, your, your spiritual vocabulary will grow. And so I tried. Oh, I, I really did. I tried so hard and everybody was laying their hands upon me and everyone was speaking in tongues. And so I squinted hard and I listened for an inner voice and I even spoke. But all of my speaking came out in English. Now, besides being a confusing and somewhat traumatizing experience for me, that moment raised a lot of questions for me. Like, does a person have to speak in tongues in order to be Christian? And what exactly is tongues? Because in Acts chapter 2, people are hearing the disciples speak in their own languages, but then later in Acts, it becomes unclear if people are hearing tongues in their own language or if tongues evolves into a kind of unrecognizable prayer language. And honestly, it didn't really matter. Because I was told that tongues was a sign that I was a follower of Jesus and I was unable, incapable of speaking in tongues. Different in the wrong kind of way? Check. Feeling like an outsider? Check. Unsaved? Maybe? Really, I wasn't sure. Looking back at this experience, I ache over religious declarations such as in, out, saved, unsaved, righteous, unrighteous, hell-bound, heaven-bound. And about tongues? About this feast called Pentecost? It makes me want to ask, what is the point? 
Is Pentecost about ever-increasing delineation between who is in and who is out, who is saved and who is unsaved, who is righteous and who is unrighteous, who is heaven-bound and who is hell-bound? Because in the story, both early Acts and later Acts, tongues is the sign of inclusion, not exclusion. Now, we could spend months reading a thousand different systematic theology books trying to understand tongues trying to differentiate between tongues as another language or tongues as as a prayer language, trying to decide if the miraculous gift is for today or, or if the miraculous gift was solely for the earliest Jesus movement. And honestly, we will never figure it out. Plymouth Brethrens are convinced tongues have nothing to do with today or with salvation. Pentecostals believe tongues are for today and are a sign of salvation. And within these two traditions and everything in between, there is vast diversity with no one agreeing upon one perspective. And this brings me to the notion of Midrash. Midrash is a Jewish interpretive lens for scripture that rather than claiming this is what the text absolutely means, Midrash dances with many possible meanings by claiming the text is a revelatory space for exploration. And so this morning, rather than claim absolute understanding of an ancient feast called Pentecost and an extraordinary gift called tongues, What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to invite us into dancing with a couple potential meanings on this special feast day. And here's the first potential meaning I'd like to explore, which is the rhetorical function of tongues. Here's what I mean. For some Christian traditions, tongues is a sign that a person is in, not out, saved, not unsaved, righteous, not unrighteous, heaven bound, not hell bound. And I kind of traced this idea as a few weeks ago in my sermon on the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jerusalem and the disciples, all Jews, speak in tongues. Then in Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit comes upon Judea and Judeans speak in tongues. Then in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit comes upon Samaria and Samaritans, half-Jews, speak in tongues. And finally, in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes upon Gentiles like Cornelius, who, along with every other Gentile in his house, begins to speak in tongues. And so here we see a progression in which the Holy Spirit goes out ever outward into the world, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Now, about this strange feast called Pentecost and this gift called tongues, I'd like to consider its rhetorical function. Uh, Rhetorical function sounds fancy, but it simply refers to impact. In other words, what is the literary impact of Pentecost and tongues on the characters in the story? Now, at first glance, some have concluded that Pentecost and tongues are a sign of who is in and who is out. Saved, unsaved, righteous, unrighteous, heaven-bound, hell-bound. Because when disciples like Peter and John hear Judeans and Samaritans and Gentiles speak in tongues, they're convinced that these people belong just as they do. But here's the thing. Before deciding that Judeans and Samaritans and Gentiles belong, just before arriving at this conclusion, there, there is an earlier really interesting and I think more profound effect 
which is shock. It's absolute shock. And it goes in both directions. On the day of Pentecost, the Jewish disciples of Jesus speak, and as Acts chapter 2 goes out of its way to make clear, all of the people gathered in Jerusalem from different places and speaking different languages, they all hear these Jewish disciples of Jesus speaking in their own tongue, and they are shocked. From Acts 2, how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? All of the people gathered in Jerusalem from different places and speaking different languages. They hear these Jewish disciples of Jesus speaking in their own tongue, and they are shocked. And now it's time for the Jewish disciples to be shocked. The Jewish Peter and his Jewish friends are with the Gentile Cornelius and his Gentile friends, and we read these words in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers, i.e. Jews, who had come with Peter, were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Here we see the Jewish disciples bear witness to the Gentiles speaking in tongues. And this time, the Jews are the ones who are shocked. And so Peter declares, they too must be baptized because they too belong. Tongues. You see, rather than delineating who is in and who is out, who is saved and who is unsaved, who is righteous and who is unrighteous, who is, who is heaven-bound and who is hell-bound, tongues in Acts shocks. It shocks the Gentiles because they hear Jews speaking in their own language, and tongues in Acts shocks. It shocks the Jews because they hear Gentiles speaking in tongues. Rhetorically speaking, Tongues is a sign of belonging, and Jews are shocked that Gentiles belong. And the Gentiles are shocked that they are able to hear the Jews in their own languages. It's as if the Jews belong. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, what if there was a tongue today that could shock vastly different people into realizing that they, the different, belong together in the divine? That would be nothing less than miraculous. Like, what if there was a tongue today that could shock Democrats and Republicans in, into realizing that they, the different, belong together in the divine? What if there was a tongue today that could shock the liberals and the conservatives into realizing that they, the different belong together in the divine? What if there was a tongue today that could shock the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick, the incarcerated and the free, the citizen and the refugee, the employed and the unemployed, the binary, every kind of binary category into realizing that the different, all that is different actually belongs together in the divine? Well, that would have to be one miraculous tongue, wouldn't it? Thinking in terms of Midrash, I'd like to move on to ask, 
what is the miracle tongue? As I've already shared, some think it's the ability to speak in another language, and others think it's a personal kind of prayer language. But rather than enter into this age-old debate with no agreement in sight, I want to try and dance with the idea of a divine tongue. A divine tongue which has the effect of shocking vastly different people into realizing that they actually belong together in the divine. And so I'll pose a question. What is the miraculous tongue? What is the miracle tongue? In other words, what is the divine language? What is the divine language that rouses belonging in the midst of difference? Well, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus declares a good gospel of freedom, healing, release, and favor, which, and this is very interesting, Jesus' good gospel shocks. It shocks his audience. From Luke 4, verse 22, they were amazed, astounded. The word could read perplexed. They were perplexed at the gracious words that came from Jesus' lips. Last Sunday, Pastor Mindy told us about a man in India who cared for the least of these with warmth, compassion, and generosity. And it makes me wonder, is that the miracle tongue? Or how about thousands upon thousands holding hands, marching and screaming for, demanding justice? It makes me want to ask, is that the miracle tongue? Or how about work that creates homes for the houseless or citizenship for the alien or health care for the sick or reform for the incarcerated? Is that the miracle tongue? Like, like, is that the language that every person, despite language, despite race, despite geography, despite time, is that the language that every person can hear? And is it by its goodness able to shock vastly different people into the realization that they together belong in the divine? I think so. I absolutely do. And if I were forced to name this miracle tongue, I would simply, merely, wonderfully call it love. Love about which John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Could it be possible that love is the miracle tongue? I think so. I really do. Love in every form, sacrifice, generosity, compassion, forgiveness. And at this point, I may as well list off the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul calls love in Galatians chapter 4. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. About which Paul writes, against such things there is no law. In other words, all of the cultural, societal, and religious rules and laws that delineate in and out, saved and unsaved, righteous and unrighteous, heaven-bound and hell-bound, these delineations are shockingly swallowed up. These differences are wonderfully put asunder. And this, this diversity of human flesh is brought closer and closer and closer together through love. 
Oh, Mike, that's, that's beautiful. But what about Jesus? As a Christian, that's a good question. I'll conclude with a final Midrash-like thought. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's writing about Israel wandering around in the desert, and he reflects on the time when, when Moses uh, hit the rock and caused the water to come out. That water that came out of that rock very literally saved Israel. About that moment, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, these words. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And the rock was Christ. Of course, Israel would never say that the rock was Christ. That's uniquely and particularly and intentionally Christian language. And that, you see, is the point. We Christians don't have the corner on God, and that's because we don't have the corner on love. Love transcends religious ideology. And that's because love is the miracle tongue. It's the miracle tongue that reminds we are all in this together. It's the miracle tongue that declares every person belongs. It's the miracle tongue that celebrates the divine in every act of love because love is the language of God. And on this feast day called Pentecost, may we, like Christians, like Paul, point at every rock of living water in the world and be the first to declare, there, there is Christ. There, there's the divine in and through that word, that deed, that experience, that expression of love, which is always and forever the expression of God. May it be so, and let us pray. Divine love, Holy Spirit, breathe upon our hearts, lives, and world until every life becomes fluent in your tongue of fire. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.